You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Lucinda Larnock. This is the WFHB Local News 4, Thursday, October 21st, 2021. Later in the program, we have our monthly podcast, Prescription for Healthcare, a collaboration between WFHB and Medicare for All Indiana. Host Karen Greenstone and Dr. Rob Stone continue their conversation with Dr. Ed Weisbart, a retired family physician from St. Louis and chair of the Missouri chapter of the Physicians for a National Health Program. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB News provides a rundown on all the latest news on the state level. That's coming up next during your State House Roundup. From WFHB, this is the State House Roundup for Thursday, October 21st, 2021. I'm Cade Young. The U.S. Equality Act recently passed through the House, and it currently resides in the Senate, where it awaits approval. The bill would prevent discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Right now, Indiana is just one of 27 states without statewide non-discrimination protections for its LGBTQIA residents, according to the Associated Press. If passed, the Equality Act would provide the protections missing on the state level. Chris Paulson, CEO of the Indiana Youth Group, was quoted in the AP saying that the passing of this bill would be very important. Paulson lives in Indianapolis, where the city has put protections into place. However, Paulson says that if she and her wife travel to nearby Greenwood for dinner, they could be denied service. Paulson says, quote, I think it's important that we have the same rules for everyone throughout the country, end quote. According to a poll from the Human Rights Campaign, seven in 10 Americans support the Equality Act. Last week, State Representative Stephen Bartles commented on President Biden's action and subsequent federal mandates for COVID-19 vaccinations that were released in September. Bartels called the mandates unconstitutional because the federal government doesn't have the power to implement federal mandates under the 10th Amendment. According to the 10th Amendment, the federal government only has the powers granted to it by the Constitution. Anything not listed in the Constitution is, quote, reserved to the states respectively or to the people. Bartels commented that he supports Indiana Attorney General Todd Rocketer in his efforts to pursue legal rights to stop the federal mandates. Bartels finished his statement regarding Hoosiers getting the vaccination by stating, quote, I believe this is a medical decision only you can make. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb signed new voting district maps into law earlier this month. The maps face criticism for the partisan nature in which they were drawn behind closed doors. 
Voter rights groups say federal legislation is needed to open up the state's redistricting process. Julia Vaughn, policy director for Common Cause Indiana, says that the current redistricting process makes voters feel like their vote does not matter. Will all Hoosiers have an equal say in congressional and state legislative elections? That's really what's at play here. And in too many areas areas of our state, voters really don't have influence because the districts were drawn to benefit one party over the other. The Freedom to Vote Act, which tackles election protections, partisan gerrymandering, and voter suppression, failed through the Senate on Wednesday by a 49 to 51 vote. That's shy of the 60 votes needed for approval. Senate Republicans labeled the bill as federal overreach. Meanwhile, Indiana ranks 12th from the bottom in voter turnout, according to the World Population Review. Earlier last week, State Representative Maureen Bauer, a member of the Indiana House Agriculture and Rural Development Committee, announced that a plan is in the works to aid and support farmers and the agricultural sector. Bauer's statement addresses the economic impact that Indiana's agricultural business has on providing jobs and income. Bauer co-authored the House Enrolled Act 1283 that aims to support the agricultural business and education on agriculture in the STEM field. The act also includes preventions for urban expansion into farming land. Bauer stated, quote, support for our agricultural workers as it recovers from the impact of the pandemic will ensure a strong economy, food access and healthy environment for generations to come. That's all for the State House Roundup. For WFHB News, I'm Lucinda Larnock. At the City of Bloomington Plan Commission meeting on October 18th, senior zoning planner Eric Grulick shared a design proposal for a five-story housing project along the Beeline Trail in 8th Street. So the petitioners would be proposing a new five-story building. Um, this would have all five floors being residential units, um, two units on the ground floor um, with some amenity space on the front along 8th Street. Uh, 18 parking spaces would be proposed underneath the building. Uh, there are eight parking spaces that are just to the south of this. Uh, that are between this and the Johnson Creamery building that would also be remaining. Um, so there would be 26 parking spaces uh, for the 60 dwelling units and 74 bedrooms that are proposed. Grulick said that the Board of Zoning will have to approve of this design as well, since the project is not able to meet the build to line due to a water culvert in the ground they have to design around. There is one aspect of the building design that does not meet the current uh, zoning code requirements, uh, and that is in regards to the amount of the building that is at the build-to line. Um, so within this overlay district, the UDO requires that 70% of the building um, be at the build-to line. Um, so the build-to line uh, at this area here is between zero and five feet uh, of the property line, uh, and the petitioner is due to the underground culvert um, are only able to have about 2% of the building at that line. Um, you know, if you go back and look at the location of the culvert uh, that basically almost completely separates this property from the 8th Street frontage, uh, it's almost impossible 
um, to have any building face uh, along 8th Street or even within the Build 2 line. Um, so the petitioners have requested a separate variance um, from that aspect, and that will be heard at this week's Board of Zoning Appeals meeting. Um, so this site plan is obviously contingent uh, upon that variance being granted, um, but that would be the, the only aspect of this that does not meet our architectural requirements. He said they are meeting other requirements to meet the sustainable development incentives, like solar panels, cool or vegetative roof, and reduction in parking. The board has asked that they still set aside at least one parking space for a ride sharing. The petitioner, Michael Cardaro, spoke to the board and said that he hopes they will start building by late spring or early summer of next year. Commission member Brad Whistler pointed out that although he approves of the site plan, he does have concerns about flooding in the area. I'll just say, yeah, that I agree. I think this is a, a good project. I would uh, offer just one uh, pushback on one point, which is that I don't think it's a safe conclusion that just because there's a building there, there won't be any water. If you've been in the uh, lobby of the Johnson Creamery recently, <laughs> you know that uh, a building and pooled water can exist in the same place. Um, so if there's a way to, um, you know, improve the, the you know, the, the amount of inlet that's there along 8th Street, I think that would be uh, wise. The plan commission voted unanimously to approve this site plan. The Board of Zoning Appeals will consider the petition for a zoning variance on October 21st. Now it's time for Prescription for Healthcare, a monthly podcast collaboration between WFHB and Medicare for All Indiana. Our guest today is Dr. Ed Weisbart, a retired family physician from St. Louis and a chair of the Missouri Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. Dr. Weisbart lectures around the country on the problems and inequalities of our healthcare system and the need for single-payer Medicare for All. He was recently in Bloomington and Indianapolis giving presentations for medical students. We turn to host Karen Greenstone and Dr. Rob Stone for more. From Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to Prescription for Healthcare on WFHB Community Radio sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana. I'm Karen Greenstone, along with Dr. Rob Stone. Hello. Our guest today is Dr. Ed Weisbart, a retired family physician from St. Louis and is chair of the Missouri chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. He lectures around the country on the problems and inequalities of our healthcare system and the need for a single payer Medicare for All. Dr. Weisbart was recently in Bloomington and Indianapolis giving presentations to medical students. Our previous interview with Dr. Weisbart about direct contracting entities, DCEs, was aired on September 9th, 2021, and can be heard on the WFHB radio website. Welcome back to Prescription for Healthcare, Dr. Weisbart. Well, I thank you, Karen. Nice to see you. You have given over 600 presentations around the country about how to repair our broken healthcare system. In this current complicated policy environment, what do you see as the path forward 
to Medicare for all? The first and, and most important thing to moving forward is to continue to push for the bill itself. There is proposed legislation in the House and Senate that if enacted, would create the very program that we are so fervently in pursuit of. So there's a bill in the House called H.R. 1976 that would establish what is pretty close to, I think, an ideal uh, program. So the first and most important thing um, is to continue uh, pushing for co-sponsors of this bill. People who want to find an action should reach out to their uh, members of members in the House. And the bill in the Senate uh, has is probably going to be reintroduced sometime in the next few weeks or months. I'm not quite sure when that's going to happen. There is a bill in the House, but it's now a couple of years old. So the first thing is to push for the bill in the House. And then the second piece is to really fight against, I believe, the movement to privatize Medicare. So we have the problem that there are insurance companies that are increasingly encroaching uh, upon Medicare and taking it over in a sense and turning traditional Medicare, the good old Medicare that we know and love, into a, a weakened program and making their private for-profit oftentimes program stronger. So we talked in the last session about direct contracting entities, and we must do everything we can to keep that from completely corroding the program that we want. So listeners who want to know more about that should tune into that, that session. But even aside from that, we need to prevent Medicare Advantage from getting any stronger foothold. The problem with Medicare Advantage, the reason I'm saying Medicare Advantage is something that we should oppose and we should strengthen traditional Medicare. The reason I'm saying that is that Medicare Advantage is designed to get in the way of healthcare. It's designed to do almost the opposite of what we think a good national health insurance program would do. They're designed to say, no, you can't go to this doctor. No, you can't go to this hospital. But they've managed to become so overfunded by the federal government for the corruption of our democracy. They've gotten so overfunded that they're able to have very low premiums, immediate expenses. And as a result, people are, are choosing it. So what we have to do to get to Medicare for all, one thing we have to do is strengthen and improve regular Medicare, traditional Medicare, so that the insurance companies don't have a niche where they can get in our way. That means we have to add in the missing benefits. We have to add in hearing and vision and dental into traditional Medicare. And that means we have to eliminate the co-pays and deductibles that are such barriers to healthcare. So as we know, the Congress is talking about adding in hearing, vision, and dental, but that makes the need for one more piece of what we have to advocate for incredibly important. If we only add in hearing, vision, and dental into Medicare, what's going to wind up happening is that the people who buy supplements to get rid of their copays and deductibles, those supplemental policies are going to become increasingly expensive, and more and more people will choose the commercial, the insurance version of Medicare, the Medicare Advantage. So a really important thing to fight for right now on the road to Medicare for all is improving Medicare by eliminating or certainly greatly reducing the out-of-pocket expenses people have today. The niche that the insurance industry has found that they've gotten the government to overpay them for is that they put some restrictions on the out-of-pocket maximum. And so people in traditional Medicare buy a supplemental policy. So we need to make sure that supplemental policy stays affordable or not even necessary by eliminating or greatly curtailing the out-of-pocket maximum. So to me, that's the road forward right now is to strengthen traditional Medicare to keep it 
public and not private. A road forward that's being promoted by some, but I think is pretty risky, is a public option. So we could put a public version of Medicare into the commercial marketplace so that people could buy uh, Medicare instead of buying private commercial insurance. That would be pretty tricky. You could put a bad version of a public option like that on the marketplace pretty easily, but then why bother? But to get a good version of public option, the insurance industry would fight that tooth and nail too. So we would need, if we wanted to go down the road of a public option, it would have to have these characteristics. It would have to really be public. It couldn't be run by a commercial insurance company. It had to be really be public. In other words, essentially Medicare. It would have to be large and able to grow or only the sickest of people would pick it since it would probably be the best insurance on the market. So it would have to be large so that it doesn't only have sick people. And that means you have to let anybody who wants it buy it. You have to let anybody who's currently got insurance from their employer, let them switch. If an employer wants to switch everybody into it, let the employer do that. If a state wants to move all of their Medicaid business into it, let them do that. And, and most importantly, for it to be large enough to be sustainable, I think you need to automatically enroll everybody who today is uninsured into the public option. And if you automatically enroll everybody who's uninsured into the public option, it would be large enough to sustain itself. But that would sound like a mandate. Therefore, if you automatically enroll everybody, which I think you need to, everybody who's uninsured into it, which I think you need to, you'd also have to allow them to easily opt out. So if we automatically enroll people, you have to let people who didn't want that easily say, hey, I didn't want that, and let them opt back out of it. So if you did that, we know from other studies that something like 85% of people would stay in the program. If you make it big that way, by letting anybody in, by letting employers shift, by letting states shift, and by letting by automatically enrolling people who could opt out, if you did that, then the attractiveness of the program to the very sick would be spread out across the entire population. And you could make a decent, but that's making a public option that good would be fought tooth and nail by the insurance companies anyway. So if we're going to have to fight the insurance companies tooth and nail, let's not fight for a partial solution. Let's fight for Medicare for all. We can do a better and a worse public option. Let's do a better one, not a worse one if we have to, but it's the wrong fight. Then two to four years fighting for a public option. We would spend two to four years implementing a public option, and we would spend two to four years then assessing whether it worked. So six to 12 years from now, we would have been where we are right now, which is knowing that it's an inadequate and imperfect solution, and Medicare for all is sitting there right in our face. Let's not waste that six to 12 years. Let's fight for the thing we know is right. I know that you have given many presentations on how to talk with people who disagree with you. And here we are in Indiana and you're in Missouri and your recommendation is to talk to the legislators. We're not all represented by people who we can actually have a reasonable conversation with. So what advice do you have for those of us who live in red states on how to organize to support Medicare for all, single-payer health care? So I'd say the, the first and most important thing is to show up. you got to show up. The opponents of, of what we're trying to do are incredibly well-funded, and they're able to bring out people to, do, to, to leverage at the point that they want. The pharmaceutical industry employs two lobbyists, two lobbyists for every person in Congress. The pharmaceutical industry employs two lobbyists for every person in Congress. How do you fight against that sort of vested interest? You do it by showing up. 
So we have to show up. And that means we show up for healthcare, but that means we got to show up for all the stuff that we think is right. If you're focused intensely on healthcare, you can't ignore the justice movement. You can't ignore the anti-racism movement. You can't ignore the environmental movement. All of these progressive-oriented changes are contingent upon repairing democracy. We all share that in common. The only way that we can repair democracy is if we all start showing up, collaborating outside of our own silos. And right in front of us, of course, on the table this month in most states is redistricting. Redistricting is going to be the key to making democracy stronger or weaker over the next decade. We need to work on that. Dr. Weisbart, your words of wisdom are so greatly appreciated. Thank you for joining us today. This is Karen Greenstone and Dr. Rob Stone for Prescription for Healthcare on WFHB Community Radio, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana. To your good health, everyone. great news for those who commute to Indianapolis. Indiana Department of Transportation announced that Interstate 69 in Martinsville should reopen by the end of the year. WFHB News interviewed project spokesperson Natalie Garrett about what motorists can expect in the coming months. About nine months ago, a five-mile section of State Road 37 in Martinsville closed to the public in order to upgrade to interstate status. However, motorists can expect the Martinsville portion of the I-69 finish line project to open soon, says spokesperson Natalie Garrett. I-69 through Martinsville is expected to open to traffic by the end of 2021. At this point, we don't have a specific date that we're announcing as far as opening to traffic, a lot of the work that is in progress now as we move towards the end of the closure, paving and things like that are highly weather dependent. This time of year, weather is a little bit unpredictable, especially with temperatures, but we're hoping to narrow that down here in the next few weeks. So hopefully we can share a more specific timeline, you know, here, here soon. The I-69 finish line project stretches from Martinsville to Indianapolis, and it will include more than 26 miles of new interstate, highway, and dozens of new or replaced bridges. Garrett explains the project at large and how the Martinsville portion fits into the broader construction. Overall, the I-69 finish line project, um, it's the sixth and final section, 69 um, between Evansville and Indianapolis um, in the state of Indiana. The actual finish line portion um, begins in Martinsville and ends in Indianapolis. It will connect with the south side of 465 there in Marion County. Specifically in Martinsville, a section, about a five-mile section of State Road 37 was closed at the end of late 2020, early 2021 to construct the new interstate lanes, ramps, and bridges in Martinsville. That's from about State Road 39 up to just north of State Road 44. The full closure was done to allow crews to work quicker um, and allow them to work away from traffic. So they're not working under traffic. Therefore, they can work more quickly and safer 
and there's also work going on north of Martinsville. Basically, the entire corridor from Martinsville up towards I-465 is currently under construction. She also touched on some major changes motorists can expect to see once the interstate opens. Well, access to the highway in future interstate will be different than it was prior to the closure. Access points will be limited to the entrance and exit ramps along what is currently State Road 37, future I-69, you know, just like other interstates in, in Indiana. And that will increase safety. And this section of I-69, you know, once it's open, travel times will be improved, you know, once everything is complete. But I think the main thing will be access points to get on and off State Road 37, I-69. As we move into the fall, an inch closer to the winter months, construction becomes dependent on weather conditions. However, Garrett maintains that road construction remains steady. She says crews are on schedule for the expected unveiling of the interstate by the end of the year. Construction is continuing on schedule um, along the corridor. As I said earlier, paving is one of the main operations going on, at least in the Martinsville area. Earlier this year, there were a number of bridges that were opened either over I-69 or along what will be I-69. Bridge work is something that can typically take place in the winter months. You know, winters in Indiana can be unpredictable, you know, sometimes super cold, sometimes mild, sometimes a little bit of both. We never know, you know, so we're hoping for good weather as we finish up this construction season and we can get things open to traffic. Looking ahead, Garrett says that construction crews will continue to work on the highway even after the road opens to the public. Work will continue in the Martinsville area through mid-2022. So, you know, just because end of the year hits, that doesn't mean, you know, our contractor is going to pack up and leave the Martinsville area. Some work will continue on some of the entrance and exit ramps, local access roads, a lot of it will be work alongside the main line, not necessarily on the main line travel lanes. And then work will also continue north of Martinsville. We'll just continue continue working north, working on the various interchanges, overpasses, slowly opening things to traffic once they're completed as we move towards Marion County. For more information on project updates and frequently asked questions, you can visit i69finishline.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Emily McCoy, Cade Young, Noelle Hahusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Dr. Rob Stone and Karen Greenstone. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Lucinda Larnick. Thanks again for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast as well as all other WFHB news programming online at wfhb.org. You too can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people coming up next on WFHB.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 